Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Coindesk's Michael Casey and Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum as they explore the connections between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. This episode is brought to you by the Coindesk Podcast Network. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Michael Casey. Hello, and welcome to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. I'm Michael Casey. In July 1993, a full year before Netscape was founded, a cartoon by Peter Steiner appeared in The New Yorker. It showed a dog at a computer talking to another one, with a caption that read, On the internet, nobody knows you're a dog. It's fair to say that that cartoon, the most reproduced in New Yorker history, resonates even more now than it did 27 years ago. It continues to be referenced at conferences, in articles, in startups, pit sessions, and now here in the intro to a podcast show. So what explains its popularity? I think it's because Steiner's dog speaks more directly than any journalist can perhaps, to the shadowy state of online identity and how it creates tension in our interactions with each other. The cause of that goes back to the internet's early design. Under its open, decentralized structure, the internet's guiding protocol assigned addresses to the computers that accessed it. But those told us nothing about the people, organizations, or algorithms that use those connections to send or receive messages. This was a problem once we started sharing information of value over those online connections, Without knowing who they were, we couldn't trust the senders or recipients of online payments or of the many other forms of valuable sensitive data, our credit information, our shopping patterns, our health data, etc. And without trust, an economy can't function. The pioneers of e-commerce came up with a jury rig solution. They re-centralized the system. Identity-managing gatekeepers took up residency on the internet the most powerful of which are now the giant social media platforms. That's empowered them to extract massive amounts of data from our online behavior, and then, aided by their ever-growing, evolving proprietary algorithms, use it to manipulate our actions in the services of their owners and clients. In many ways, these all-powerful entities have become adept at identifying humans and dogs on the internet for their own purposes. Yet they leave us bombarded with manipulative disinformation campaigns by unidentified bots and without access to our data or a reliable recourse when it's used and abused by those who control it or steal it. It's the worst of both worlds. After countless data breaches and scandals, there are finally real efforts to build a better system that protects our data and affords us the privacy we deserve. The most important building block in this new system is something called self-sovereign identity. This radical model uses cryptography and a set of protocols and information standards to give individuals, rather than governments or corporations, sole control over the data and credentials that define who they are and which give them access to services. It's complicated stuff, but it could be the internet's best hope at redemption. Just as importantly, self-sovereign identity could be the foundation for a truly decentralized economy, one that dramatically lowers barriers to entry and slashes transaction costs. On its own, cryptocurrency and blockchain are insufficient. Bitcoin offered a narrow solution by creating a digital form of cash. Users didn't need to identify themselves to exchange it. But pretty much all other aspects of real-world value exchange demand some form of identification. If we can deliver that in a way that gives autonomy to people, companies, and trusted devices without granting data control to middlemen, it could unlock a greater variety of decentralized applications and bring the internet closer to the liberating promise of empowerment that it still held back in 1993. In this episode, we talked to Brian Bellendorf, the executive director of Hyperledger, about the digital identity work underway within and outside the blockchain community. As someone steeped in the open source traditions of the internet, Brian is uniquely placed to discuss this. But before we get to him, let's welcome my co-host, Sheila Warren of the World Economic Forum. Hi, Sheila. Hey, Michael. Remember that cartoon, right? I mean, I, 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 I see it all over the place, right? As I said, the most popular cartoon 
that the New Yorker ever produced, at least in terms, I suppose, of all these people who use it for their presentations. That's where I tend to see it. <laughs> it is like it's become clip art of sorts. Yes, it has. What I've liked is the way that people have riffed on that a bit. There was actually a New Yorker cartoon, I think in 2003 or something that came out that then once we realized that identity was a problem, that riffed on it itself. And it said, you know, remember when on the internet, nobody knew who you were. And again, mm -hmm. a couple of dogs playing around with it. <laughs> and then one of my favorites is the blockchain version of this, uh, which is on the blockchain, nobody knows you're a fridge, <laughs> yep. which is great, right? Because then it talks to sort of <laughs> machines taking over and then machines having their own identity exactly. and their own autonomy and everything else, right? Which is pretty real, right? The that, singularity. The singularity, <laughs> yeah, yeah, We yeah. move closer. You know, I think it also sparked this whole genre of cultural memes. Maybe people don't realize are really connected to this. So everything from, you know, South Park had that whole episode of World of Warcraft where Cartman is suddenly becoming a massive gamer sitting in the basement, you know, mm -hmm. eating snacks, you know, this kind of thing. And a lot of that kind of cultural fodder really stemmed from this cartoon and this idea. It's amazing how humor can so effectively just zero in on what is really a complicated topic. This notion of who we are and identity, and we'll obviously get into a bunch of this as we delve into it with Brian, but like it's, it really touches on complicated questions of who we are and the difference between yeah. our own personal identity, the choices of identity, the way we lead our lives as different identities, depending on who we're performing for. That's right. I mean, so much of this is performative. That's exactly the, the adjective I would use. And when you ask people to identify themselves, so much of that is context dependent. Even thinking about the way you show up in the world, the way you show up professionally can differ in different contexts. The way that you show up in your family, you have different roles that you play, different things you highlight about who you are. And what I think is really interesting is all these notions in the workplace of bringing your authentic self to work. Well, what does that really mean? Because historically, we didn't really do that. We kept certain parts of our lives separate from our professional engagements. But now on the internet, you can combine all those different factors. You know, I'm reminded of that really funny meme that went around for a while, which had a picture of a person four different ways, right? So you had like your Facebook picture and then your LinkedIn picture, which was like you with the glasses and the suit. And then you had your Instagram picture and of course your Tinder picture, you know, your kind of come hither glance and all those different ways of, of picturing yourself and how you show up in the world, even though all of that centralizes around the same actual person. And what it is in some respects as well, like there's layers of it, right? Sometimes it's different the concept of the split personality and the well, which is where the Sybil attack comes from. But beyond that, like there's layers. So there's this full concept of myself, if you like, which only I could really know, I suppose. And then there's these attributes that I can afford to give to some people that may give very, very little information about me, but it's enough to transact with because all you need to know is whether or not this is this classic line that David Birch kind of, I think, defined around what an ideal identification process might look like where all you need to tell the bar owner is to show something that proves that you were born That's after right. a certain date, not your name, your actual birth date, mm -hmm. any details that you hand over, just proof that the answer to a certain question is actually answered correctly. And so that's like a minimal level of attribute, right? But you could then add complexity to it. Well, here's another example that's very timely. When it comes time to get, really get back on planes, how do you prove that you have been tested for COVID, you're negative? or maybe at some point in time you're immunized, like these things, how are we replacing the standard vaccination yellow card with a digital version of that? How do you prove that particular information, which is going to prove quite critical to the reopening of the economy and particularly of the travel industry? This notion that you can choose what you reveal to whom and when is a really important tenet of self-sovereign identity. And having that control reside with you is something that I think many of us, I'd say over the past decade, seeded a lot more information about ourselves then we realized, I think in many cases, we were actually doing, and now when we want to pull it back, it's proving to be impossible to do so. That is a real problem. The fact that we've already <laughs> just let that The genie fall. is out of the bottle, and yeah. that genie is not going back at any time soon. But for the next generation, they right. have a chance to think differently about this. I'm glad you raised the COVID situation, because it really does bring into sharp relief this question of the trade-off between the need to protect privacy, but also the need for some level of public information so that transactions can happen. We need that public verifiability of some element of truth about ourselves to actually go about solving problems like an epidemic. But we also need individuals to have that private component. So the trade-off is, is really important. And it seems to me as well as those trade-offs vary from person to person. 
there's a and context to context. Some of it is about like, what do you want? Do you want access? Or I mean, the conversation in the Western world, in the developed world is all about, you know, oh my God, my privacy, I need to protect this. I have a bank account, right? I have a credit score. I have those things that I need to get access. And I'm worried about all of that data spilling out across the internet. But if I'm living in a slum in pick any number of poor countries where, you know, my identity is something that, I, that is really ill-formed in a public sense. It's not something that I can prove readily. I would probably want more, right? I would want more identification, more access. And this gets lost sometimes in what the objectives are, where the conversation is dominated by this story around data risk for people in, in well-to-do environments. But the other part of it is like, yeah, how do we create solutions that actually onboard people into the system so that they can provide data about yeah. themselves and gain access? Well, you know, who are two ways I think about this? So one is I think about myself. And so certainly the data that I'm willing to provide is, as I said, very highly context dependent. So I may be more than willing to allow my genomic data, which is about as personal and sensitive as it gets, to be revealed you know, anonymously in an encrypted manner to a public health authority for the purposes of COVID-19 track and trace, because I think that I personally think that is very important, et cetera. That exact same data, I may absolutely resist it being used by uh, you know, a cosmetics company to color match a foundation to my skin tone. Same data, but the context matters tremendously and significantly. And so this idea that the control over that stream should reside with me through some permissions that I can be flexible about uh, is something I think more and more people are waking up to. And then to your other point, one of the things I think about a lot is the way that data or access to data is often quite colonialist and exploitative. And it's something that a lot of development aid agencies worry about a lot and think about tremendously. And so there's this whole code of ethics around what do you do? with crisis data, right, with humanitarian data collected in the, in the time of crisis to provide services to people that are in desperate conditions. So refugees are a very common example of this. You know, you flee in the middle of the night, often, let's just paint this picture, you can't take anything with you. There's no one who knows who you are. They can't connect you to your family members. There's no proof that you're actually married to your spouse or that your children are your children or whatever it might be. You don't have access to food, to healthcare, to resources. And so you walk into a refugee camp, they scan your biometrics. And they say, you know, what you get in exchange for that is you get essentially access to some sort of services there that are going to literally keep you alive. There is no notion of consent of that data collection in that moment. It almost seems insulting in a way to kind of put that sort of frame, of, you know, of the privacy of this into that context, right, when someone's life really is at stake. But then downstream, how do you think about the fact that that model is actually something that it doesn't have replication issues, but it has tremendous scope for exploitation? And it's deeply, deeply problematic. And this is, again, it's a known problem. But to your point about the trade-offs between privacy and access, particularly to these kinds of services, what are the solutions there? How do you provide meaningful control to people in situations like that? Or even a less dire situation. Uh, there is zero question in my mind and the minds of many in the, in the crypto and digital currency space that the single biggest barrier to digital currency adoption is lack of identity. It's lack of digital identity. It's lack of a way to basically prove that you are the wallet holder or whatever the mechanism might be to access your store of value, however you're defining that. And without that being unlocked, the adoption curve is unlikely to really, really take off. And that's particularly true in the context that you noted for people who don't have access to the banking system, the traditional banking system, who really are seeking mechanisms for storing and sharing value and using that for purchase of basic services or for their livelihoods or whatever it might be. So in all of these contexts, we have to really be mindful of what a centralized system enables and does not, and how easy it is for such a system to really be exploited. So I want to bring Brian in a moment because you mentioned crypto and blockchain, and I think it's important because there is this development of this concept, SSI, self-sovereign identity, and blockchain is playing a role in that. <clears throat> but there's a myth, I think, that blockchain is this critical part, that it is actually the storage layer for the data, which is absolutely not the case in the way that at least I've seen the more advanced architects that's out. It's really about protecting and figuring out who has control over the keys that give access to the data that it resides in much more localized settings. Nonetheless, I think it's also really important to think about what something you were just alluding to, which is like, there's so many blockchain applications out there that could potentially be valuable if we could only figure out how to intersect with identity. And so to me, it's, it's much about how these solutions could enable so much more rather than 
whether or not blockchain is a critical part of the solution itself, although it does seem that many designs do do this. So on that note, let's bring Brian in. I want to chat a bit about some of that that concept, Brian. But before we do that, we need to go back a few months because Sheila... Um, <laughs> yes. Sheila, <laughs> Sheila the last time we were all together in person. In yes, Arizona. Indeed. indeed. It was in, in Phoenix, Arizona. And she sent me this note at one point and said, hey, when people ask you what your last pre-COVID photo was, if you go through your photos on your phone, is yours the same as mine? And I looked at it and it was. <laughs> and that photo was of Sheila and I standing out the front of the venue that the Hyperledger Foundation had decided was going to be the appropriate place for us to celebrate the closing party. The after party. Of, yes. The after party <laughs> of, of the Hyperledger <laughs> Conference. And it was called the Corona Ranch. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you, you could not have. It, at that stage, it was all we were talking about. We were fist bumping each other, and there was like elbow bumping, elbow and- bumping, of oh, elbow bumping. I'm sorry, definitely yep. not fist, <laughs> elbow bumping. And there was hand sanitizer everywhere. And then you took us to the Corona Ranch. It was something special. <laughs> what went through your head when you realized that that's what you were doing, Brian? <laughs> well, thank you, Michael and Sheila, for having me on on the podcast. Like all things related to face-to-face events, you plan these things out months ahead of time, right? And, you know, we had about 500 people register for the event. I think it was uh, 390 show up. Uh, So you wanted to have a place you could unwind, you know, allow people to be outdoors. It was in Arizona, but in March, so perfect weather. And the ranch, you know, seemed like a nice balancing act. You had food, you know, you could have hot air balloons. It was lovely. It was great. It was, it was lovely. Yeah. And, and oh, it's called the Corona Ranch. Well, I mean, even as of March 2nd, the event was March 3rd through 5th. So it was like, yeah. you know, I mean, we were obviously aware there's this thing going on in China, but we were also all in Davos, right? We were also oh, yeah. like traveling quite a bit through February too. So, you know, the humor of it, I think we could still laugh at it, about it at that point. Certainly by mid-April, we couldn't laugh about it. I'm glad we can laugh about it again. So Brian, before we get started here, it'd be really useful for our audience to hear a bit of your own history, your journey through the internet. You are one of the OGs in this space, and I think it'd be really valuable for you to, uh, to outline the you know, things you've done that have brought you to this new role that you now have at Hyperledger. And I'm just going to say, <clears throat> pop-ups. <clears throat> <laughs> not pop-ups. You can't blame me for pop-ups. Uh, oh, okay. What is it? Let me do it again. I'll tell you what you can blame me for in a bit. So I uh, landed at as an undergraduate freshman at the University of California, Berkeley, fall of 1991, and got a Unix shell account. And the rest was sort of history. I kind of fell into Usenet, fell into email, fell into IRC. Actually, it was very much a black hole. I, I kind of ignored a lot of school <laughs> or kind of put minimal amounts of effort into it while pursuing kind of just a richer understanding of where did this come from? How are these tools built? Uh, this seemed like really bizarre to me. And then I also had an interest in electronic music. So I set up an electronic music website that was one of the first you know, non-university websites and all that kind of stuff. And then ended up looking out a friend I know was working at early on at this new publication called Wired Magazine. And they mm-hmm. needed somehow to get email working and get back issues online in some way to really live up to their title. So worked for them for a few years, setting up Wired's first website, and then the first ad-supported website, which was Hotwired. So you can't blame me for pop-ups, but you can blame me for ads. And in the course of that, extending this free open source web server called the NCSA web server, along with a few other people, and we eventually rolled those improvements together into something called the Apache web server, which evolved into the Apache Software Foundation. During that time and working on the web server, this question of the web as a stateful environment, as a place that remembers who you are, you know, remembers you're logged in somewhere, really came up. I proposed a few things, one of which kind of led to the the development of the cookie header. So I have no patent to the cookie, although I've helped invalidate other cookie-based patents. So I guess that qualifies as having it somehow related to the invention of the cookie. So sorry for that as well. But uh, (laughs) I think I've atoned for it by basically giving away everything of value that I've ever actually created. Um, So Wired, (laughs) and then a few startups that I uh, kind of had some modest success, uh, something called CollabNet, which is about trying to figure out how open source projects work and take that to companies to help them work more collaboratively. And then I took a break and got involved in this interesting political campaign in 2007 and ended up serving in the Obama White House in the Office of Science and Tech Policy. 
to try to bring more open thinking to the executive branch. Left before the whole healthcare.gov thing, sadly, before the big wave came in, but planted some seeds. And I left to go join the World Economic Forum, where I was CTO for a few years. And that was really fun. I spent half my time, again, getting digital thinking into all these different projects, anticipating and hoping that somebody like Sheila would show up and actually carry it forward in a much more substantive way. Because um, I got to spend half my time kind of dropping hints and trying to make introductions and try to get more digital stuff going on. And the other half of my time trying to get the World Economic Forum off of Lotus Notes. Uh, so Sheila, tell me. <laughs> and thank you. Let me thank okay. you particularly. Wow. <laughs> atonement achieved, Brian. Atonement <laughs> achieved. <laughs> and then I spent a few years hanging out with, uh, with a crew called Mithril, who are kind of growth stage venture capital investors. And so trying to source some deals for them and just see what life was like on the other side of the table. But then ultimately found myself drawn back to technology as a public good. And I saw the launch of Hyperledger at the Linux Foundation and said, how can I help? And so my boss, Jim Zemlin, said, well, we're looking for somebody to run it. June of 2016, I joined Hyperledger and I've been there and with the Linux Foundation ever since. Give us your definition of what this concept, self-sovereign identity is. How do you define it and, and what does yeah, it mean? You started in 1993, got on and realized, hey, this is an amazing thing. Where did this come from? And to realize that it was built by... Uh, cooperative network of researchers and programmers and a little bit of companies, you know, Sun Microsystems was there, even IBM was there early on, but that it was really a cooperative network was great. But also what was amazing was how little it mattered who you were. So I, I really resonated with that New Yorker article when it came out. And I think it was in the first week that I was online that I also heard about this organization called the Electronic Frontier Foundation, which, you know, initially it was started to, to kind of fight the actions that were being taken against Steve Jackson Games but really came to embody, you know, what is this question of civil rights online, of human rights online? What about this new domain should we be fighting for when it comes to freedom of expression? And certainly issues of identity are wrapped up intensely with that. And I now serve on the board of the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I've been there since 2013. And these questions of identity resonate really deeply. In those early days, <clears throat> the first tool that I'd say, you know, emerged to try to identify this at a, in a protocol-wide or an internet-wide kind of way was PGP, Phil Zimmerman's pretty good privacy platform, because not only was it a way to encrypt emails between people, but also a way to know that the email you were getting came from a person who you had previously exchanged keys with or was a friend of a friend who you had exchanged keys with. You know, this was really an implementation of this big idea called the web of trust. Now, PGP had some unfortunate centralization kind of aspects to it. There was a key server that everyone kept their public keys. You kept your private key on your local device, but the public keys had to be looked up if they weren't available. If you were emailing somebody for the first time, you went and, and looked those up. And the key servers struggled. You know, They worked when it was a hobbyist kind of thing, but it was hard to update. If I lost my private key, it was kind of hard to go and nullify that unless I'd done some other things ahead of time. And there are all these usability issues. And certainly with the end user kind of world that, that kept it from really being an identity layer for the internet. What we ended up defaulting to were technologies such as S-MIME and then SSL and TLS, where the security of the connection and the identity of the parties was federated, but it was federated in a way that was you know, even worse than the way DNS is federated. You had to go through a couple of gatekeepers, pay money for a certificate, and we really didn't get out of that. The centralization idea that ironically was, was something I think we enabled by virtue of the fact that the internet being this benign place where the, the people building the internet were inherently trustworthy in some way, you know, you, you presumed that mm. your systems administrator did not read your email. You presumed that the people mm. who ran the network weren't watching where you were surfing or, or uh, web surfing or what you were doing just by kind of default. <laughs> the innocence of the past, you know. <laughs> yeah, there's a naivete to it. But as soon as it was pretty clear that log in with Facebook, log in with Twitter, that suddenly there were economic interests that were very interested in knowing where you were going and such, that we had to get away from that naivete. And so we got to these centralized systems. They scaled very nicely. Centralized systems scale very nicely. And you can even see that in Aadhaar, set and adopted by the government of India, where 1.3 billion people now have a portable digital identity. And actually, they can open accounts, bank accounts really easily now with it. They can get access to social services. But there's some big issues, and we can dive into that. So when people stepped back and said, how might we take a fresh look at this? There was the web of trust concept that served really as inspiration. In fact, one of the seminal papers in this came out of a conference series called Rebooting the Web of Trust. And that was Christopher Allen's paper on 
defining really what self-sovereign identity was, which was kind of recapturing it from this very peer-to-peer oriented model, but using a distributed ledger, whether that was the public Bitcoin ledger, which I think was on his mind as he proposed it, or other distributed databases as the foundational kind of place to park the public keys and potentially more information that you use to present your credentials. And that solved in elegant ways the challenge with using key servers in a PGP setting. And that's really served as the basis for the last four years of organizations and and individuals working together to build the underlying protocols, something called the the DID specification, the distributed identifier, something else called the verifiable credentials specification. This is something now being built with W3C to kind of say, okay, here's a certificate that has a signature, that has a, a container of some sort. It's a document, could even be code, and it's signed and it's attached to a DID. And is being used now to also look at how do you facilitate things like what the GDPR cares about or CCPA? Do you have the consent for the data that you're accessing or using or building your AI model out of? And using a ledger to record that consent or record the withdrawal of that consent solves a number of these problems in a very elegant way. That's what's exciting is that we're tapping into these, these kind of historic trends and perhaps even some ideas that didn't work 25 years ago, but have a chance of working now. It is a really exciting time, I think, in this space. And I think some of the technical advances, as you know, blockchain and other technical advances have made it possible for us to be more creative and imaginative about what this might look like. But there's something in, in what you said that I really wanted to pull on a bit. The idea that there's just there's different kinds of data circulating about us, you know, out there. There is certainly what we call PII, personally identifiable information, which is information that indicates that I am me to some extent, it's things like my address or my birthday or, you know, whatever it might be. Like this kind of information will categorize generally in one bucket. And sometimes it is really important that I can prove that I am me. But that is actually less important in many contexts than, than you would think. And so for kind of for the average person, it, it isn't always important that I prove I am Sheila Warren, but instead that I prove that the same person is engaging in multiple transactions, regardless of who that person is, but that there is a persistence to the identity of whoever it is or the thing that it might be. And it's that sameness that actually is more important. So that's a distinction, right? In addition, we certainly know that a lot of what is monetized about us on the internet is actually clickstream data. Put another way, it's passive data. So it's things as I'm moving around the web and I'm clicking around, whether it's on Facebook and ads and likes and whatever this kind of stuff, it needs to be tied to me ultimately, in part, this is what the advertising model is about, but it isn't important that the advertiser know that I am me, Sheila Warren. Again, they just know that user da 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 NYZ, whatever, has these likes and dislikes and interests and whatnot that make me a likely consumer of their product, to kind of give one very specific example. What I'd love to ask you is, how do we think about what data really matters for identity? And these are different ways of parsing that. But certainly, if there's this idea that a lot of what is valuable isn't actually the most personal data in many cases, it is more that, I'll use a lawyer term, the penumbral data that kind of surrounds me, the aura that I give off about who I am, that is actually more interesting to many players. So I'd just love to get your thoughts on some of that. Proving you are who you say you are is not even what I view as kind of the point of many of these digital identity systems. It is being able to prove that this document that has been issued to me, such as my driver's license, my birth certificate, my diploma, is the same document that I'm the same person as the one now applying for this job, right? I'm applying for this job because I'm proving that I've got a diploma. Exactly. It's the credential. It's the credential. Exactly. My law license, my bar certification, whatever it might be. And when you think about something like, like, a, like a prescription, right? You know, a doctor has issued a prescription to me to go take it to the pharmacist and get that prescription filled. And the pharmacist can trust that not only was it assigned to me, but it was also signed by a doctor who is authorized to make such signatures, not just my friend Joe, right? So that's kind of a second layer beyond just raw credentialing to this kind of purposeful kind of information. And then a third layer of information might be all the other health records about me. And I might not necessarily want to share all of my health records with a specialist that I'm seeing, but if I've moved or I've changed jobs and I have a new general doctor, I'd like to be able to give that doctor a token, some easy way to get my historic record of my health so that when I walk in with a new malady, they can understand what's going on. And so there is this spectrum, this continuum. And I think what we are seeing are people building two kinds of applications to manage this. One is a wallet for managing personal data, managing these certificates that are very close to you. And it could look very much like a cryptocurrency wallet. Here is, again, your digital driver's license, your digital vaccination record. 
all these things that at a point of sale or a point of engagement with somebody else, you want to be able to present to them. And very differently from what you could do if this was being stored at Facebook or whatever, you want the issuer not to know when you're presenting this, right? All the other digital identity systems and personal data management systems basically send a, a notification or require you to source that data from the issuer. And that's what's led to this surveillance economy that we've, we've found ourselves trapped into. Instead, I should be able to present that diploma to a job that I'm applying to without the school that issued it knowing that I've been applying to that. And that is particularly relevant in refugee settings where you want people who have fleeing abusive regimes to be able to prove they were a doctor in Syria without the government of Syria being able to cancel that certification or cancel that issuance or even know that that person is now applying in this new country. One type of software is a wallet, right? And hopefully these things just get built into not only cryptocurrency wallets, but also Apple Wallet and Google Wallet and those sort of things. The second is the concept of a data hub, a personal data hub. And just like a wallet, this should be relatively independent of not just who issues this information, but also your platform provider. Like I should have a hub that works whether I'm accessing it through an iPhone or a Linux desktop or wherever, right? But the hub lives more natively on the internet. And the hub is probably where my full health records are. And the hub is able to respond to my doctor when they want kind of historic information, even if I'm offline, because I've authorized that person to access it. So this world of wallets and hubs using blockchain technology as the connective tissue for discovery, for validation, recording of consents, and especially when I move to a third doctor <laughs> and I want to remove that second and first doctor's access to my records, recording that kind of information, obviously in an, in an encrypted form and some uh, privacy safe form, but still in a way that's provable and can be built into the tools to enforce that is how we get out of the morass that we're in today and actually get to being able to build data sharing systems that span organizational boundaries. I really want to talk a bit about this distinction between identity and credentialing. I think a lot of people conflate those two things. And certainly in order for a credential to have meaning, it is issued by a body, by a third party to some extent. So whether it's, like you say, the alma mater or whether it's in, you know, in the case of the, the Bar Association of California or New York or whatever it might be, there is some verifier that can prove and has some standard you know, that I have met that proves that I have that credential. So could you speak a little bit about the role of those credentialing organizations in identity and in the maintenance of identity, particularly the digital context? Yeah. So the protocols are being designed to allow the issuers of credentials and the people who are relying parties, you know, the people who are evaluating whether these credentials are real, as well as the people like you and I who hold these credentials to all be peers on the network. I mean, I should be able to issue to you, Sheila, a token of my appreciation for having me on the show. Oh, and vice versa. <laughs> a credential that entitles you to one free beer at the bar of your choice, right? And the bar should be able to like look at this and validate that this is a legit token and give you the beer without me knowing like which bar you use that at. I mean, this is a silly example, but you know, everybody is an oracle in this. I mean, maybe that is somewhat the point of identity. I'm really optimistic that these architectures are being designed not just for the world where there's a big government agency that issues a driver's license, but also for the peer-to-peer the -peer identity systems that we all want to see built. And in doing so, maybe starts to get us away from thinking that your government-issued identity is the heart of who you are as a person. I mean, maybe we take that for granted in the, the States that the social security number is essential when you're applying for a loan, is your key to opening a bank account. It doesn't have to be that way, right? And it's a very regressive thing when you think about people who don't have much of a credit history because they've lived most of their life off the mainline economies or they decided you know, never to take on debt as part of their life, right? You know, There are whole parts of even the United States that aren't reached by the financial systems we have. I think this is really critical to trying. I, I'm not a, a smash the state kind of person by any stretch, but I'm fairly certain that there's a lot of things that today we think we have to depend upon the state to provide for us that we actually don't need to, that we could, could do ourselves. So the state clearly is you know, this mechanism that we've fallen back on to essentially enable exchange, to enable the formation of these social relationships and to have them function in a kind of a transactional effective way to the benefit of the broad community. So what's really interesting about what you're saying is that, you know, in some respects, we're still doing the same thing. We're just now truly decentralizing that effort so that I get my proof of identity my, or my proof of attribute or my credentials or whatever it is that I need to do to transact 
from that interaction with everybody else, that we're all kind of collectively participating in the affirmation, if you like, of everybody else, um, which I want to take to another level because, you know, that process is always ongoing through our interactions with each other. But now in, an, in a digital environment, it's being recorded. This is what Facebook does when it is able to predict, supposedly, that a couple are going to break up before they even know it, right? Because the tracing of their communication activity follows these patterns. It's, it's very spooky that we're able to build all that proof of identity. But there's also something quite really constructive and positive potentially around that. Again, if we are able to hide it and put all those controls over how that information, who gets it and where it goes, like a refugee who doesn't have access to a clear form of credentialing that the world can trust, the idea that I can actually still participate in an economy by virtue of having this store of data that is derived from all of my interactions with other people is actually quite liberating. Where is the technology going? Does it take us to a world where eventually it's so much more valuable just to pull some AI-recorded, privacy-protected version of myself than it is to go to whatever university I went to and have them prove that I am XYZ type of credentialed person. Do we get that kind of organic definition of identity coming out of this? Well, I've always resonated with the concept of a VRM. Doc Searles, a uh, really pioneered doc, as, you, as you, you probably know, along with David Weinberger, wrote a book uh, called The Clue Train Manifesto back in 1999. And then started in, I believe it was 2005, a project at the Berkman Center at Harvard, now the Berkman Klein Center, called the Vendor Relationship Management Community, uh, which was an attempt to try to invert the uh, CRM view of the world, right? Instead of all of us being represented by database entries in you know, an e-commerce engine, what if our engagements with the world were organized and, and routinized from, from, with us as the center point, with us as the point of integration, right? And how do we invert some of these relationships so we're not treated like chattel in these conversations we have with companies who work with us? And I think recently, an even stronger brand that has come along is kind of me to be rather than be to be. How do I have a sense of agency? How might I have an Amazon wish list, right, that wasn't tied to Amazon, right, was something more independent and neutral and that I could either share in part or in full with other e-commerce sites that I'm at where I can add things to it from other sites? I can't do that when the structure of the, the protocols on the internet have me so tightly bound to, you know, almost like in a television way of dealing with Amazon as a, as a hermetically sealed website. And I can when I start to have more of a concept, not just a portable identity and identifiers for objects and for sale I can carry around with me, but these certifications as well. My credit history, my credit worthiness being a, a big example in the financial services space. In fact, this is something that is being implemented now in the country of Sierra Leone by Kiva, something called the Kiva Protocol, using self-sovereign identity backed with Hyperledger Indy and, and a couple of other technologies where they've issued identities to all 8 million citizens in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone had no credit bureau system, which meant the cost of lending in Sierra Leone was 30%, which is just an usurial rate. They wanted to bring that down. To do that, you need a credit bureau system. And they decided, let's see if we can do this in a privacy-preserving way, have something that can still be considered a system of record for people's loan worthiness, right, credit worthiness, but doesn't create a central honeypot of all that data and abuse people's privileges that way. Certainly something that can make sense in a market like Sierra Leone, but could also make sense in India, could even make sense in the United States. It's hard to predict exactly how the world looks different once these technologies are out there. Sometimes I'm very positively impressed by what I see consumers pick up. Sometimes I'm very disappointed, as I'm sure all of us are. I think the wallet metaphor resonates with people in the same way that email as the ultimate kind of portable messaging platform, the cockroach of the internet, the thing that dog was using in that cartoon, and we're all still using every day. That degree of portability or data, people are, are waking up and realizing they need that. It's not something that should just be a cast off from a, you know, download a big zip file from Google credit to Google for allowing you to do that, but instead something you can manage as a first class kind of thing. And your currencies and your certifications are, I think, the right layer of abstraction for bringing that up to end users. We'll see where that leads. I'm optimistic about the wallet metaphor succeeding, and I'm hopeful, it's less clear to me, less obvious to me, but very hopeful that the data hub metaphor will also get us to the point that leads us to the portability of medical records or the portability of your photos. You should be able to choose, publish on Facebook, publish on 
other services out there, right? Or published to your own personal website and pulled together comments from each of them and views and that sort of thing. I am only imagining the trouble my seven-year-old got up to if she had a portable wish list. So uh, <laughs> you know, I love that example. I think it really does nail it. This idea that you can kind of create something that is persistent, that is personal to you, but that is platform independent or vendor independent is really important. But on the Kiva protocol in Sierra Leone, what I think is really interesting, what I'm finding very fascinating in some of the platform providers, and, and Kiva, just as a reminder, is the micro lending and microfinance facilitator that has been working in many countries around the world, including, I think, for over a decade in Sierra Leone, is this notion of platform obsolescence. Digital identity can unlock more peer-to-peer interaction. And I think that is tremendously exciting. I think I, you know, it's why all of us are, I think, in this space and what drew many of us to the technology in, in the first place. I wonder about the incumbents and the players in this space. And do you feel like the resistance on the part of incumbents, because digital identity has some very clear benefits to a lot of incumbent players, right? I mean, there's certainly opportunity for persistent identity and verifiable identity to unlock new business models and to unlock new ways of you know, data monetization, all these things, very exciting. But do you feel like there's been resistance in this space from uh, certain sectors or incumbents or governments or others who really do stand to be quite dramatically disrupted when a digital identity notion really takes hold and we start to see much more adoption. Well, yeah, you certainly haven't seen Facebook or Google leading the charge on SSI. Um, You've heard positive things from Jack at Twitter about the decentralized web, but the corporate leaders in this space have been IBM and Microsoft and Accenture, all of whom have deployed self-sovereign identity systems for governments and for other applications. In the government space, I'm very encouraged when I hear Countries that view themselves as part of a larger whole, such as countries in Europe who realize they're part of the European Union, and federation at the very least, proper decentralization is kind of a, more of a first principle there. They want to allow Belgian authorities to issue credentials that'll be understood, respected, and dealt with in France without one of those two having to give up their, their sovereignty as an issuer of those credentials. But I worry more about countries that are further along with their projects like India, like China, you know, even the United States has had digital identity as a top-down kind of mandate for 12, 15 years. In India in particular, I have a concern that the Aadhaar system, which could evolve to a multi-issuer system, you know, where the government-issued identity is just one of many on a shared network, what they're adding to Aadhaar are systems for, you know, like a lockbox kind of system. It's almost like a Google Drive you attach to your Aadhaar identity. They're talking about lots of other kind of layers being added on Aadhaar. And as soon as that becomes a platform with the self-reinforcing dynamics, That'll become very hard to dislodge. You know, and one hope we have, so I serve on the technical advisory board for ID2020, and ID2020 is uh, setting itself up to certify and has certified solutions for government identity projects, such as the, the one that Kiva has conducted, in an attempt to try to steer this kind of second wave of adoption more in the direction of human rights respecting, privacy respecting, not explicitly around self-sovereign ID, but recognizing that there is a need to avoid Aadhaar-like outcomes for many of the countries of the world as a way to get to more financial inclusion, as a way to get to vendor neutrality, as a way to avoid you know, central parties you know, having omniscience. Now, if you're a government, you have a blind spot. You don't think it's so bad to have omniscience, right? <laughs> of everywhere that, not only of who all your citizens are, everybody deserves that, but where are they spending money? Where are they presenting their credentials like Should countries have that right? I think most people, when they pull themselves out of that context, would argue that that's not the case. And it's especially those countries that engage in a substantial amount of trade who are realizing that identity needs to cross borders, needs to deal with issuers. This has actually been one of the most compelling arguments with the Indian authorities I've spoken to is consider the migrant workforce, consider the travel industry, right? You have people coming into the country, you have your citizens working abroad. You need a digital identity system that can act as a peer to the identity systems in these other countries and other citizens of the world so that you can engage in commerce with them, so that these credentials are portable. That wins the case. And I think ultimately, this architecture wins for the same reason the internet won. The internet was able to aggregate local area networks into a global addressing and, and routing scheme. And so whether it's next week or in five years, this feels like the path things eventually head. So winning, at least in terms of the history of the internet, has been set by money to, to a large extent, right? I mean, it was, it was the moment of e-commerce when we decided that we wanted to sort of make some money out of the internet. We got away from that naive model and we had to sort of use these centralized systems to resolve the identity problem because we had to make money, right? 
So it seems to me that, you know, particularly when you were talking about that Sierra Leone case where, you know, there's these 30%, you know, usury type lending rates and the capacity to unlock value by reducing the cost of money, it's going to draw participants into it, right? It'll draw lenders into it. It draws. So if we can use these technologies to truly reduce the friction in the global economy, it seems that's where you get the motivation. You're not going to get it from Facebook and Google because their interests lie elsewhere. But a lender or you know, anybody that's trying to sort of do business in places that they can't have access to, that's where the incentive and therefore the drive for change, I think, can come from. But I think we can go even bigger than just thinking about people in underprivileged places who, who don't have access to identity. It's also the sheer complexity of identifying companies and machines and participants in the global economy. You know, Hyperledge has been working a lot on supply chain solutions and it seems to be one of the big problems there is how do I prove the identity of these real world participants in a supply chain? Is this pallet moving machine literally belonging to which company it says it is? Can you speak a bit to that about how this identity architecture can feed into a lot of the more mundane, but nonetheless really important and friction-filled components of the global economy so that, just to plug the name of the, the show here, we can reimagine money. And specifically, Brian, I would love to get your thoughts on just KYC, AML, and in general, all of those requirements that are essential in order to access certain parts of the economy. So there are two examples that come to mind then. It's pretty clear any interesting application of blockchain technology is going to need to know who you're dealing with and need to deal with personally identifiable information, whether that's around healthcare or around supply chains or, or financial records, right? Every record of transaction creates a permanent kind of history. So these become PII very quickly. Even transactions on Bitcoin or Ethereum are by a way of looking PII, right? If I can attach you to an address which uh, is, is a pretty common thing out there. One way is to look at this self-contained within a given network. So you've perhaps heard of the Trust Your Supplier network that had been built by Chainyard and, and IBM. This was a network to kind of keep track of the history of performance of suppliers in global supply chains. It actually was brought into use quite extensively during COVID, figuring out who are, who are the good suppliers for personal protective equipment, for masks, that sort of thing. It wasn't the transaction ledger. It was really just more the reputational ledger. And that's interesting, but those parties probably want to be able to take their good history on that project that's embedded inside that network and present that as a credential in other networks. So one interesting question to ask is, is that the right architecture to really expand these into global reputation systems and to provide a layer of interop and integration beyond just this, this one application? A different use case that I find fascinating is the government of British Columbia who issued every business owner a digital identity credential, again, using Hyperledger Indy, for the purpose of being able to, to use that as the center point of integration with all sorts of other government services. Government is not just one thing, right? You know, in Canada, here in the US, I'm sure everywhere, but you've got local government, state government, national government. If you're running a restaurant, you probably have to engage with all of those at one point or another. And sometimes even to open your shop, you've got to get a permit to operate. You've got to you know, have a business identification to pay taxes. You, know, you probably have to meet certain HR requirements. It would take a long time to wait for government services to integrate all of their different permitting systems and, and such behind the scenes so that you had one pane of glass to be able to digitize your engagement with government. If instead, your processes of engagement involve receiving documents and being able to share those documents back with different levels, you know, to show when you're applying for a right to serve alcohol that you have passed some other criteria, for example, then you become the point of that integration. And that allows the government IT services to evolve and update kind of at their own pace. So this idea of the end user as the point of integration, I think is perhaps the most compelling economic value that can come from the adoption of self-sovereign identity. But right now, the global financial system at least, are increasingly constrained by this need to self-identify, to you know, carry out the know-your-customer anti-money laundering KYC AML regime. And in the cryptocurrency world, for example, you can just see how it just consistently restrains the ability true globally integrated operations because you, know, you, you are in breach of whatever 
US rules are in place for doing so or whatever country's rules. And the opportunity to actually be able to have security, the fact that people aren't abusing the system, that there is not malicious actors working through it, but nonetheless not imposing that that heavy burden. You know, PII that just is by law, by necessity, is picked up by all these banks, right? How might this world look where you've now got banks, institutions able potentially to move digital assets back and forth and not have to necessarily gather all that information about people? One of the interesting things we can do here is move away from the idea of your government-issued identity as being the root source of trust between us to other forms. So if I wanted to buy a domain name from you and pay for it with Bitcoin or Ethereum, it's kind of hard to con- entirely script that through a smart contract. Uh, I could, of course, I could also find a way to do it and perhaps even cheat you behind the scenes. But uh, <laughs> I have so no you doubt could. you personally could you do that, Brian. But you could, one hundred percent. You know, in order to be sure that it didn't, like, you'd have to like really like read the code yourself and understand, yeah. and make sure that there wasn't like some sly off by one error. That, uh, uh, anyways. Um, so I don't actually have to know that you're Michael Casey to sell you a domain name. I just have to have some recourse, you know, if I transfer the domain to you and you don't send the payment over, right? Like some way to manage that counterparty risk. And that can be done through a proxy of some sort, through somebody else issuing you a certificate that says your word is good or that they'll provide insurance for it. And that might be good enough. Data minimization is a word that I I think it was a completely unknown to anybody in Silicon Valley until a few years ago. Uh, and it is a core principle of the GDPR. Maybe personal data is an asset, but it's an asset in the same way that, like my friend Don Marty says, you know, a barrel of oil or even nuclear waste is an asset, which is it can very quickly turn into a liability as well. You might want to use it temporarily, but then get rid of it, get it off your books. If I don't have to know that you're Michael Casey and like who you are and where you live and how to track you down, you know, then. I'm probably a happier person. I can just sell you this domain because somebody else has vouched for you. That I, dog like, and that fridge are really making <laughs> You might be a dog in a fridge and I don't have to care. If I don't have to care, that's a good thing. And I think the digital identity can get us out of that trap of having to know your national identity and your income level and, and that you're a qualified investor you know, and all that stuff to be able to engage in business with you even when there's risk outside of what the blockchain can correct for. Like again, we can use smart contracts to mitigate a lot of counterparty risk and automate a lot of these systems. So I don't have to trust you, but that's the exception. I think in most business transactions, there's still a desire to know who am I dealing with? So I understand, can I reverse that if I need to, or can I have some sort of adjudication process if we need to sort out a dispute? Let's push on that a little bit, because part of what KYC and AML are, you know, it's, it's CTF policy, which is counterterrorism financing. And so Yes, you know, I don't need to know that you are you, you are Brian Bellendorf, you are Michael Casey, but I, what I need to have a level of assurance that is pr- pretty much prescribed is that you are not using the funds or the assets or whatever it is that you are obtaining from me and there's different levels of, you know, of scrutiny on that depending on what it is. You're not using that to finance terrorism basically. And and there are severe consequences to this such that some banks, you know, engage in a practice called de-risking where entire categories of people or organizations just simply cannot get bank accounts, even if they meet all of the legal and and technical requirements under KYC, AML, and CTF policies, because it's just considered too risky for the bank to do ongoing diligence with that customer set. And we've seen this quite a bit in the charitable space, where the ability to kind of finance in a cross-border manner, smaller organizations, you know, it's almost impossible because they just can't get correspondent banks and respondent banks to talk to each other. Every single time that your money moves through a bank in the banking system, they have to conduct their own investigation, their own diligence on whether or not, you know, you are funding terrorist activity or you're supporting terrorism. So it doesn't matter who you are, but the web of trust notion is actually really important. It's kind of what is foundational to the entire notion of this sort of diligence that is required in the banking system. And what I think is really interesting is that when you when you phrase this to banks, or to governments for that matter, even to the average citizen. I mean, nobody really wants to be funding terrorists. That's not a good thing. We all kind of agree that, nope, we shouldn't be doing that. And part of the criticism of Bitcoin was that, oh, it's just being used for really bad actors to do terrible things, including, you know, terrorists. So I take your point that certainly uh, the identity in a PII sense is not what's important, but it is the web of trust around the generated activity. And you can kind of look at what an actor has been doing on the visible internet 
in a way that could provide some of that comfort to institutions that are that are often dealing in the transfer of large amounts of money and don't want to inadvertently wind up, you know, blowing up the world. So it's complicated. It's a really complicated system and it's complicated in part for a reason, but the consequence has been the lack of access to giant parts of the population because the requirements are just so onerous and strict and in many parts of the world just not even reasonable. Yeah, I think without getting into the the debate about whether KYC is a good idea or or moral <laughs> It is certainly a very reasonable debate to be had. It's problematic, let's put it that way. Yeah, <laughs> at, at a minimum, we can go there. We can all agree. We probably could all agree that if you can bring down the cost of presenting credentials and verifying credentials, building up institutional trust in the system of how these work, if we can move away from stamps on paper that get faxed, you know, I'm sure all of you have applied for visas to travel, opened accounts. Like, There's a lot of very archaic processes here that are remnants are the, the paved over cow paths of you know, previous ways of doing things that these tools have a chance to, to automate without destroying kind of the human element that was necessary to a lot of those processes uh, or allowing a balance between the two. But if we can overall bring down the cost of presenting and then verifying these credentials, we might be able to make satisfying KYC requirements a lot easier for uh, the people who, who are not intended to be you know, held back from being able to do commerce. That would be my hope. Lots of ways to attack it then, right? It's not just about this web of trust. It's also about the lowering the cost of acquiring the credentials. And you could maybe work that into kind of a more mainstream framework. It cannot go in many, many directions, Brian, from the sounds of it. So important, so complicated, but yet lots of momentum behind it. Can nonetheless, I get you to put a bit of a crystal ball in front of yourself here and just tell us as we close out, what can we expect and when? I don't need you to tell me what exactly the world will look like, but any dates in which you would expect to see some important progressive developments around SSI that people are going to really notice and become a thing? Well, because I see so many people working on this today, I think next year you're going to see a digital yellow card, the vaccination records. For anybody who's not only traveling internationally, you know, even within country, and until, until we're all completely vaccinated, which will take a, a year, years, preparing for the prospect of there being mutations to the COVID-19, to the SARS-CoV-2 virus that lead to additional waves like this, you know, that because these new pathways for propagation have been devised by these pathogens, we're likely to need to seriously upgrade our game when it comes to vaccination records uh, and the portability of those as a tool to, to travel internationally, to travel domestically, to enter a workplace, potentially to enter other, uh, you know, spaces like city halls. I mean, there are major civil rights issues at play here as well. But putting those to the side, using digital tooling as a way to help us deal with that complexity that, that we're going to be forced to deal with around vaccinations, maybe to a secondary degree, test results as well. But I, I, I think uh, it'll really be about around vaccination records. And that, that will emerge next year. There are already tons of companies working on that. The next is in academic credentials. There's a lot of motivation in the United States from the White House to the major organizations involved in secondary education to see academic records go decentralized and go digital to make it easier, not only for, you know, when you apply for a job to prove you really did graduate from Harvard or whatever, but as a tool for vocational training as well. A lot of retraining is going to have to happen to help adjust for, you know, the, the massive changes in the economy that the pandemic has brought on. And so making those records portable, avoiding a centralization effect the Gates Foundation about 10 years ago tried to create a central education record system state by state, but still using the cloud. But it turned out the cloud meant centralized and decentralized in a certain set of hands. And that caused a 10-year delay in actually getting to digital education records, which is a shame for everybody who's been affected by that. There's new energy in this, new coalitions being built. The technologies we've all been talking about are, are serving as the basis for that work going on now. So I think next year we'll also see your LinkedIn history, basically, uh, uh, at least as far as education records go, going to something that's portable, managed from a wallet or something that looks like a wallet. And I think in other parts of the healthcare sector, that this is a pathway out of uh, some, some big issues. It all depends on what happens in November, right? But the ACA has taken us so far, extending coverage for insurance to, to people, but uh, it hasn't done anything for making health records more portable. 
that has hit crisis proportions now. And, and again, people focused very intently on, on seeing that happen. And these tools, I mean, there's, there's pilots and prototypes of them out there today, and there's no money behind this. And I think we'll see that next year in spades. All right. Uh, that was uh, just a, a tour de force of Brian Bellendorf, Executive Director of Hyperledger. Thank you so much for your time, for being with Sheila and I on Coindesk's Money Reimagined. We'll have to have you back sometime. Thank you. It was great. Thanks so much, Brian. And Sheila, I'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. Can't wait. You've been listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined. This episode featured Michael J. Casey, Sheila Warren, and Brian Bellendorf. Our theme song is Shepherd, and this episode was produced, edited, and announced by Adam B. Levine. Thanks so much for listening, and stay tuned on our Coindesk Reports subscriber feed for the final episode of our popular Ethereum 2.0 Developer Perspective show, featuring Coindesk Research Analyst Christine Kim on Saturday, the 10th of October. Have any questions or comments? Send us an email at podcast at coindesk.com, and we'll see you next time.